Lord, we thank you for the passage that you have set before us this morning. It is full of the amazing grace that you have shown us. And Lord, I I hope that you can show us this morning that that grace is the most practical thing that we can have. That that grace changes everything about our lives. And I pray that as I preach your word this morning, that you allow me to speak your words and not my own. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, the first time that I felt truly alone in life was right before I started seminary. Now, you may know I go to seminary in California, which is quite a ways away from here. Kaylin and my parents had spent a few days with me there so that I could get settled in my new place, and then they all had to go home. So as I was laying in my bed that night with no friends or family closer than 2,500 miles away, I was left wondering, what in the world did I get myself into? And then the next morning, I had a Hebrew class at 8 a.m., which did not make me feel any the wiser. In the first verse of this letter, of First Peter, Peter addresses this epistle to the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Peter is writing to people who had either literally or metaphorically been deported to where they were currently living. These provinces that Peter lists took up an enormous geographical area. It was slightly less than the entire state of California, which is a huge swath of area in the ancient world. They had no planes to get around to. They had no cars to drive. So these Christians are completely isolated from the rest of the Christian community. While I have experienced the feelings of isolation before, the experience of those in the dispersion were far worse. They were actively suffering as a result of their faith. Christianity is such a different religion than the rest of the world, so whenever it is a minority, the outside majority seriously questions or persecutes this really odd minority sect. The Romans thought that Christians practiced incest, because they referred to their husbands or wives as their brothers and sisters in Christ. The Romans thought that Christians practiced cannibalism because they ate Christ's flesh and drank His blood in communion. Christians were also ostracized for their practices of self-denial of worldly pleasures. So the Romans couldn't understand these really weird beliefs that Christians had. They didn't understand these, this weird theology, this weird belief in only one God. The Romans believed in many different gods. And Peter knows the situation of these Christians very well. He has been beaten, harassed, and driven out of towns ever since Pentecost. In fact, he uses the language of the Babylonian exile to bookend this letter. At the beginning, he writes to the elected exiles. 
At the end he states, She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. Peter understands that his audience is living in a sort of exile. Their homeland is far away. They may feel like captives in a strange land. Furthermore, in chapter 5, verse 12, he states the reason that he wrote this letter. He says, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Peter knows that the best thing he can do for these people is to remind them of the grace of the gospel and encourage them to stand firm on its truth. So the passage that we have before us today is a microcosm of the whole book. Peter wants us to know that our identity before God should remind us that we're not alone and that we should live in light of this reality. Because of all that God has done for us, then we can stand firm with Christ and respond with our actions, the fruit of our beliefs, which God calls us toward. So that is what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at who we are in Christ And then what our identity calls us to do. Let's begin with our identity. If you ever get pulled over and the officer asks for your ID, what information does he gather? He'd learn your name, your age, your address. If you're being really honest, he'd actually learn your real weight. If someone wanted to go deeper, they might ask you, what do you do for work or information about your family? All of these things are important, but none of them are the most significant things about us. For Christians, our identity goes far beyond these physical characteristics to who we are spiritually through our union with Christ. Peter uses six Phrases to describe our identity as Christians. Look with me at verses 9 and 10. He says that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, God's people, and those who have received mercy. All of these ideas are rooted in the Old Testament's description of Israel. In other words, Peter is applying the same understanding of Israel to these churches. Peter groups our identity into three main categories, which he defines as our election, our priesthood, and our nationality. The first description that Peter uses is that we are chosen by God. We are a chosen race. Now, when we use the term race today... It generally refers to a classification of humans based on skin color, hair color, um, facial features, and etc., resulting in many different races. But this is not how the Bible uses the term race. In the Bible, the word for race simply refers to a group of people with common descent. That's why you see this word translated as descendants or people. Or the like. And the Bible only recognizes two such groupings, Jew and Gentile, which is to say Jews and everyone else. And the fact that individuals who were not racially or ethnically Hebrew became identified as Jewish shows us 
that the biblical concept of race is very different from the modern day concept. Ruth and Rahab became identified as Jewish. The phrase Peter uses here has nothing to do with skin color or any other physical feature. It's instead about God choosing a a group of people, not based on their skin color, not based on their nationality, but based on um, who they identify with spiritually. And this idea of God choosing a particular people is pervasive throughout the Old Testament. Isaiah 43.20 has the same word that Peter uses of a chosen people. For I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people. God specifically chose Israel. And Peter uses that same language to describe his audience. To describe you. You are God's chosen people. The shocking thing about this statement is that Israel was only one people group, Hebrew. But these churches spread out over the size of California are definitely not one people group. Revelation 7-9 says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands. This reality was hard for Peter to grasp himself. Remember in Acts 10, when God told Peter to eat unclean food, and he refused to do so, God specifically had to tell him to go into Cornelius, a Gentile's house, because he was a Gentile. In Galatians 2, Paul criticizes Peter's hypocrisy for refusing to eat with Gentiles. So the early church and Peter himself were surprised by the reality that God was now bringing the Gentiles into the church. And boy, am I glad he did, because all of us here, for the most part, are Gentiles. None of us could come to Jesus otherwise. The fact that the Gentiles are chosen combats a false idea that the Israelites had developed over time. They began to believe that there was some reason that God chose them. That by being a descendant of Abraham, they were somehow more special than the rest of the world. No matter how many times God told them otherwise, they could not understand that God chose them simply because He wanted to. In fact, Deuteronomy 7.7 says, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers. All of us have this innate part of us that believes that God chose us because of something special about us. Something we do. Something we choose. Or something that we are. But Peter is reiterating the biblical teaching that everyone who comes to Christ only comes because of God's good pleasure. Our identity must be solely based on what God has done for us. It is God who chose us. And the fact that God chooses people who we might think don't deserve 
God's grace, should tell us something about ourselves. None of us are worthy of being chosen by God. And yet, here we are, a people from all different backgrounds and cultures, all standing before God as His chosen people. Second, Peter calls his audience a royal priesthood. This is different than just being God's nation or God's people. Priests are people who stand before God and mediate between Him and others. Since God cannot dwell amongst the sinful people, the priests would offer sacrifices to atone for their sins so that God wouldn't judge them. This idea sounded great to me as a kid. What if whenever I did something wrong, I could have another person stand in my place and receive my parents' punishment for me? That would be great. I wouldn't have to deal with their anger at all. That would have been awesome. But notice that Peter extends the priesthood to all believers. Now, there's not just one special class of priests. Everyone is called a priest. This draws directly from Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6, where God says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Remember that we just defined priests as those who mediate between God and man. If the entire kingdom of Israel is composed of priests, then who are they mediating for? It wouldn't be for each other because they are all priests. Well, if they are not mediating on behalf of each other, then they must be mediating on behalf of the surrounding nations. This is part of God's promise to Abraham when He says that through you all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. The fulfillment of that promise was supposed to take place through Israel. Israel was supposed to bless the nations through their priestly mediation. Their priesthood was supposed to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. But they utterly failed. Instead, they only wanted to make a name for themselves. The only Gentiles they blessed were those that God directly brought into His kingdom. Like Rahab. And Ruth. So this national priesthood has an outward focus to it that Israel failed to uphold. And Peter is telling us that based on our identity in Christ as God's chosen people, we are a royal priesthood. Notice that in Exodus 19, being a kingdom of priests is dependent upon obedience to the covenant. God says, if you obey my voice, if you uphold these terms of the covenant. Here it is not a command. It is indicative of who we are. In verse 5 of this chapter, Peter writes, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Because of our election, because of what Christ has done for us, we can offer spiritual sacrifices directly to God. Priests had direct access to God, and Peter is saying that you have the same access. Because Jesus has declared you righteous 
and the Holy Spirit dwells in your heart, you can freely stand before the Father and offer spiritual sacrifices. This is an amazing reality. But notice also that Peter calls them a royal priesthood. He doesn't just call them a priesthood. He calls them a royal priesthood. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus' first words in chapter 1, verse 15, are the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. When Jesus came, He ushered in a new kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of Israel had failed. There would no longer be a physical theocracy on the earth. There would no longer be a kingdom where God ruled over it as a physical nation. But there is a spiritual kingdom that Jesus brings about. Peter declares that believers are royal, that they are co-heirs of this kingdom, princes and princesses of the great King Jesus. If your identity is entirely with Christ, then just as He reigns, so do you. You don't just have direct access to the Father. You are a prince or a princess in the eternal kingdom that God will bring to pass in Jesus' second coming. You will reign with Jesus forever. Now, as if that weren't enough, Peter lavishes upon us one more reminder of our identity as believers. In Christ, we are a holy nation. Holiness has two main connotations throughout the Old Testament. It meant being separated from the other nations, and it also meant being separated to follow God's law. In Leviticus 11.44, God says, For I am the Lord your God, Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. So Peter wants his audience to know that there is an element of otherness, of separation, that is necessary as Christians surrounded by other cultures. The main element of this distinction is following God's law. In verse 12 he writes, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter says that the way that we can glorify God is by doing good deeds. Likewise, Israel was commanded to follow God's law in order to stay in the land. In Exodus 24, Israel is just on the other side of the Jordan on the other side of the promised land, about to enter, and Moses reads all of the laws to them. Israel responds by saying, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So Moses sprinkled blood on them, symbolizing that the people's blood was on their own hands if they do not keep God's law. Well, you know how that went. Israel completely failed. Even before they get into the land, they disobey God's law. They disobey God's law as God is giving it to Moses on Mount Sinai. So how can Peter call us a holy nation? None of us can be holy by sheer effort. For Peter, our standing as a Christian depends entirely on Christ. Since Jesus was holy, we are holy. Since Christ died to sin, we die to sin. And since Jesus was resurrected, 
we will be resurrected. Israel shows us that there must be someone who can stand as perfectly holy before God. And the Gospels and the letters, Paul's letters, Peter's letters, John's letters, all show us that this person who could stand before God is Jesus. Peter tells us that we gain the same holiness when we believe in Christ. We become holy in Christ when we are first united to Him through faith, the moment we first receive His mercy. Which is why in verse 10 Peter writes, Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Our identity, our standing before God, is based on God's mercy. And by His mercy, we receive Christ's holiness and are made more holy through our sanctification. So I hope you are overwhelmed with what God has done for you. You don't need to shout amen or raise your hands or go dancing in the pews as some might. But I hope that in your heart, as good Presbyterians, that you know how the depths to which God went for you. He chose you even though you did not deserve it. He has given you direct access to Him. He has made you a prince or a princess in His kingdom and He has declared you to be perfectly holy. There's a lot in these two verses. But Peter does not simply leave us with a reminder of who we are in Christ. He goes on to show us how that identity drives us to live for Christ. In the middle of this amazing description of our identity, Peter gives us our calling. Look with me halfway through verse 9. That you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. The purpose of our identity is that we proclaim God's excellencies. This phrase, proclaiming the excellencies, comes directly from Isaiah 43.21 where God says, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. Declaring my praise or proclaiming the excellencies is the same phrase that occurs throughout the Psalms. We just saw this last week in Psalm 96.3, our monthly memory verse. Declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous deeds among all the peoples. So another way of understanding proclaim the excellencies of God is praising and worshiping God through our good works. We are to tell ourselves and each other of all the good things that God has done for us. In the Old Testament, God was worshipped and proclaimed through the sacrificial system. One commentator writes, the the sacrifices of the Old Testament were ceremonies of worship glorifying God. They symbolized atonement for sin and the giving to God of the life and devotion of the worshiper. However, there is no reason anymore for the death and the blood of the Old Testament sacrifices. When Jesus died, He offered the perfect sacrifice so that no more sacrifices needed to be offered. Does anyone here have student loans or a house mortgage? Imagine the glorious day when you have finally paid 
all of your debt off. Free at last. But do you then think, you know, this debt free lifestyle really isn't for me. I miss those days of writing half of my income away to the bank. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take a check and I'm going to send that monthly payment out anyways. You'd be completely insane if you were to do that. Going back to the sacrificial system would have a similar effect. Jesus has already offered. He's already paid the perfect sacrifice for our sins. No animals need to die anymore. It would be completely pointless to slaughter a bull or goat for our sins since Jesus has already paid the price. Instead, as we've seen in our passage, Peter has called us to present spiritual sacrifices. This seems a little vague. It's like, what kind of experience is this going to be? This like super spiritual sacrifice. But thankfully, Peter wrote more than just these two verses. In verse 11, Peter urges them to abstain from lustful passions. In verse 12, he urges them to do good works in the face of persecution. In verse 17, he commands, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. This spiritual sacrifice demands that we submit our entire lives to the Holy Spirit. It demands that we turn completely away from our sin and live by the Holy Spirit instead. Additionally, Paul also states in Romans 12, 1-2, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul uses this same language of spiritual worship or a spiritual sacrifice to urge us to be transformed from the ways of this world to the will of God. And later in Romans 15, Paul tells us that this spiritual worship, this spiritual sacrifice is brought by the Holy Spirit making us acceptable and sanctifying us as a holy, as a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Our act of worship is to completely submit ourselves to the Holy Spirit who will sanctify us through and through. Remember though that priests are not only inward focus. Peter does not call us to be monks who live in a monastery and never encounter the outside world. Priests must mediate between God and the world. As a royal priesthood, it is our calling to offer our spiritual sacrifices so that others might be brought into the kingdom. The act of offering ourselves entirely to God and turning every desire over to His will should change how we treat others. One way of proclaiming God's excellencies to the world is by displaying the fruit of the Spirit to even the worst of our enemies. However, God is not only worshipped by actions. He is also worshipped by words. The Psalms are full of words of God's praises. They are full of words with which we can praise God. And Peter calls us to lift up these verbal praises. Remember who Peter was writing to. 
These were not people who were living comfortable lives. They were persecuted at every turn and deeply struggling. In the midst of this, Peter calls them to praise God, to proclaim His excellencies. Now what I'm not saying is that in the darkest moments of your life, you're called to burst out into song, praising God for how good He is. In fact, most of the Psalms are laments. The psalmist can share the sorrows of this sin-cursed life with God. However, our overall calling in this life is to praise His name, to declare His excellencies, no matter the circumstances of our lives. We should be characterized as people who praise God, who rejoice in Him. And this is our greatest testimony to the world. You know, the religion of the Roman Empire was characterized by fear. People tried their hardest to appease the gods so that they wouldn't go hungry or suffer disease. They brought constant physical sacrifices of grain, money, animals to appease these gods. They had countless superstitions by which they had to honor the gods every time they entered their house. My professor said that the origin of carrying your bride across the um, threshold or through the door is has its um, origins back to the Roman religion because they had household statues that would guard the entrances of their door. And so this new bride was a new person that the gods had to decide if they wanted to judge or if they wanted to um, protect. And so by carrying them, carrying that bride into your house, you would avoid the bride accidentally kicking over the god and therefore incurring that god's wrath. All of their lives were filled with these constant superstitions that they had to uphold for fear of losing their own lives. To people living in this world, Peter writes that God loves His people more than they could ever imagine. He chose them. He makes them princes and princesses in His kingdom. And He makes them holy. God didn't need a sacrifice because He hated humanity. Rather, He needed a sacrifice because humanity hated Him and turned to sin instead of loving Him. God even provided that sacrifice through His only Son so that we do not need to offer physical sacrifices anymore. Instead, we can spiritually submit ourselves before Him and follow His will. Peter says that our calling is not to fear God as judge, but to praise His name as our loving Father. We should be filled with joy whenever we talk about God. What a testimony that would have been to people who feared their gods and wouldn't talk about them for fear of upsetting them. Peter says, go forth and praise His name in everything that you do. Imagine how odd that would have looked, but how refreshing a witness that would have been. Many people in our day and age fear God. They think that God is out to get them. They think that God is weighing every good action they do against every sin they commit with the hope of throwing them into hell. If God really exists, He can't be good because He allows so much suffering in the world. What if our first witness to them 
was how we displayed the fruit of the Spirit to them. And then we talked with them about God. And we declared how joyful and wonderful and amazing that relationship is. You see, our identity, who we are in Christ, should completely change how we live. The Holy Spirit is constantly working within us as Christians to sanctify us to this great calling of leading people to God through how we act and praise Him. Maybe some of you sitting here today have listened to all these things and you realize that this identity is not true of you. You have not believed in Christ. You do not have this amazing identity. I hope that you can see just how wonderful Jesus is. He is calling you as His child, as a member of His chosen nation, to come to Him. He wants to share the riches of His spiritual kingdom with you. He wants to share the love of God with you. He wants you to reign by His side in the kingdom of God for all eternity. So come to Him. Accept His grace. And receive His mercy. Enter into the kingdom of God. Others of you identify as Christians. You may know what Jesus has done for you very well. But you may struggle to see how that translates into how we treat others. You may be discouraged by the recurring patterns of sin in our lives. But Peter is telling us that before we ever get to what we do for Jesus, before we get to our actions, We have to first start with what He's done for us. This changes everything. Our identity in Christ can make us go from doubts to assurance, from fear to joy. It's only because of what Jesus has done for us that we can be motivated to love others with the same love that He has first loved us. That's the Gospel that people need to hear from us. That, the, that our identity is as a chosen nation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. That our identity compels us to love others, to offer ourselves as spiritual sacrifices to God. That's the gospel that others need to hear. And that's the gospel that we need to hear. Because of the superabundant riches with which God has given us, we have no reason but to praise Him to everyone we encounter through our actions and through our words. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank You for this amazing amazing passage of just two verses where You lay out so much of our identity in Christ. You lay out what entire books of the Old Testament try to communicate. That we are chosen by You that we are a royal priesthood that can stand before You and reign with You forever. And that we are a holy nation that through the righteousness of Christ, through His, through faith in Him, we can stand before You as holy. And Lord, we pray that You will implant this truth so deeply in our hearts that we can do nothing but want to tell everyone that we come into, come across about you. We pray that we will show your love, your gospel.
to them and how we talk about you and then how we act. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.